I have three pictures that are going to be shown. And uh, the first, well, they're all, they're, the one thing they all have in common is they show something that is unpopular. Now, usually we have... No, it's not a picture of you, Steve. <laughs> um, we, we all often see pictures of that which is most popular. I know I'm going to please at least two people I can see very well this morning, but we'll come to that in a minute. The first, though, is something we eat, or perhaps don't eat, Brussels sprouts. Who, who actually, I actually like Brussels sprouts. Who likes Brussels Yes, uh, totally wrong, isn't it? Anyone like to guess what the real, the one I couldn't get a picture of, but not a very good one? Any guesses? No? Well, I'll tell you, anchovies. So, there we are. The second picture we come to, I don't suppose anyone would, well, in a sense, it would be, it'd be very surprising if you did know where this was, because this is the least visited tourist attraction in the UK. And this is the sort of, in London, it's part of the Inns of Court Museum. It's not the only one, it's one of several museums there. They, most places often get, you know, you're into thousands a week. Thousands and thousands in the course of a month and a year. This place clocked up in one year 40. 4-0. In the whole year, 40. So there we go, the least popular. Now the last picture, where I'm going to make friends and make enemies at one and the same time. This is where people have chosen, and whichever map you look at, it's different. Whatever list you look at, it's different. What is the least popular place to live in? There should be some feeling of it smug, but we will come to them in a minute. But I have to tell you, I come from the least popular county in the country, apparently, because it clocked up two, two places that are least popular in Essex. One is Jaywick Sands, and the other is a part of South End. Not all of it, but one part of it. Um, but uh, if you sort of look, uh, the, the, the redder the looking, uh, the better it is. Well, the north of Scotland does pretty well. Uh, yes, hooray. And uh, James organised this for me, but there is no bias, he assured me. You've got it, you've got it. Where is the most popular? Mind you, why aren't you back there? Um, where is the most popular? <laughs> why not? Northern Ireland. That's where everyone should be going. But I'm glad they don't, because you're here. So we're glad we've got some of you here. You brought the happiness across. You're missionaries, really, aren't you? That's right, absolutely. When Richard asked me, as no doubt he asked Mike as well, to think about these two Sundays, last week and this week, last week Mike ably led us thinking about betrayal. And... Uh, we uh, were thinking very much about faithfulness and betrayal, how you put those two things together. If he drew a short straw, I think the other short straw was today. It's faithfulness when it makes us unpopular. Faithfulness when it makes us unpopular. But I think there's a, a quicker, easier tagline is what we read a second ago, at least Janice read it to us, Will you also go? Do you also want to leave? It's a story, really, this passage, of a crowd that gets smaller and smaller. The way John has written it, 
it really sort of st- stresses this point that, uh, that, that the big crowds who shouted for Jesus, the big crowds who followed him, they saw the feeding of the 5,000. They, they saw and heard about the, him walking on the water. They'd seen earlier on the healings that he'd performed. And John doesn't write in a chronological order, so no doubt some of the other miracles we read of in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are also there, uh, what they've seen. They see him give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He's seen people take up their beds and walk when they have been stricken for years. And so it is this crowd, they love this man. Give us more. This is the person we want. This is the person we want as our king to lead us, to bring our nation from the dismal state it's in to the nation it should be, could be, and ought to be. But this crowd disappeared. Now, we don't know how many other disciples other than the 12 we talk about as disciples We don't know how many there are, but there are obviously a good number who followed him around, who at least considered themselves to be disciples. Whether they were or not is another matter. But they considered themselves to be ones who followed Jesus, admired his teaching, who perhaps looked deeper than the rest of the crowd. They understood who this Jesus was. They understood the message that he was bringing. And so it is that we come and find that Jesus, as it were, one minute feeding the 5,000, the next talking about himself being the bread of heaven, and then beginning to talk about that if they did not take eat of the bread and drink of the blood, they had no part in him. They needed him. They needed to have that such intimate relationship with him. It's as if they're eating him, drinking him. Now, clearly, he didn't mean it literally, But what he did mean was, and which John takes up strongly through the rest of his book, is to follow Jesus, to live for Jesus, is to let Jesus live in you. It's about a relationship, not following rules and regulations. And Jesus talks about, you know, in one stage later on in John's Gospel, about him being the true vine, and we are the branches within that vine. Without him, without feeding on him, without living on him, we cannot truly consider ourselves to be his followers. And we do not have that life in us. What then is perhaps facing up to the reality of our unpopularity as those who seek to follow Christ? There's a book which I meant to bring today, because I can't remember the author now. I tried not to buy books. And when Richard came, I said, I've got one fault with you, one problem I have with you, week by week. You keep tempting me to go and buy another book. And I'm trying to get rid of them. And here I am buying books. The one I bought recently is one that I resisted for a long time because I knew it would be very hard to read. Hard in the sense because it seems so true. You may have read it. It's written by an Australian, but it very much echoes life in the West, and the UK in particular. Because it talks about the church, the Christian church, and it says, we are the good guys. But the word good has been crossed out deliberately, and across the word good has been written the word bad, in big, big letters, bad. And this author, who's Stephen, someone, I just can't remember his name, 
who underlines in many, many ways the many instances where once upon a time we sat at the table, as it were, we had, the, the, we had people listening to us when we told them this is not right, this is the way to go, this is unjust, this is unfair. We would not tolerate the, uh, problems be, just because a man had a different colour skin from another. That, that, should, that should not mean that we ignore him or in any way we in any way sort of limit him. Because God looks at the inner man, the inner person. Just because a, a person is poor and not rich, just because a person perhaps is not the most handsome and debonair or beautiful, this should make no difference. We are to love all. All are equal in God's sight. He has made us and loves us. When John speaks in John 3, he doesn't say God so loved bits of the world, the wealthy bits, the white bits. He says he loves the world so much that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, for you and for me. We now, sadly, instead of being seen as the good guys, we are seen as the bad guys. We are the ones, according to some, who are blocking man's future, blocking man's possibility of of flowering into the person he should be. We are the ones who are standing in the way. We are bringing old-fashioned views and values. We are bringing those things that act like a sort of handbrake as you try to drive your car. And so it is that we are now the bad guys. Oh, yes, once we were probably the good guys. We were pretty well ignored, maybe, or at least listened to, but dismissed, but politely so. But today, as in fact both Stephen and Janet have hinted in the past, they did in the leading up to this service, we see a society which is moving rapidly to listening and believing and just accepting a sort of new gospel, a new way of thinking about man, a new way of thinking about the world and its standards. And so it is. We have a man uh, not long ago that I was reading in Ireland, a teacher, a senior teacher, who was coming up only a year or two to retirement. And the school suddenly decided it would follow this sort of transgender trend of using uh, the pronouns that the pupils decided they wanted to call. They didn't want to be called him or her. They wanted to be called they or them. And this teacher said, well, A, it doesn't make sense, but B, it just goes against everything I know and believe about God creating man and woman, uh, making us as dignified and glorified reflections of himself. It totally diminishes man. He was sacked. And the young lad, who in much more recent times, somewhere here in England, somewhere in the south, who was sent home because he dared, dared to to question the teacher who said and assured him there are 720 genders. And uh, he said, I believe there's only two. He was sent home and told not to come back to school again until he could behave. We live in a very challenging, difficult, unnerving time. And it isn't just the things that are said, it's the way that things are accepted 
and not challenged and not thought about. It reminds me of many of the, of the, many of the prophets of old. As Janet hinted, in our homework, we sort of very, it was like good preparation for this morning. We thought of all the Old Testament prophets. One we didn't really quote very much, but uh, the, the verse that sticks in my brain, almost the first time I ever read it, was Jeremiah, who looked around and heard what people were saying and said, Jeremiah, this is rubbish what you're teaching. Surely God isn't the only way. Surely following God, that was all right for our forefathers, but we're modern man, we're modern people. We live in a world with demands that our forefathers knew nothing about and cared nothing about. He went to God and said, I've got a complaint. I, only I am left. And indeed, they even seek to slay me, even though I'm the only one left. And sometimes we feel like that, maybe not as individuals, but as the church, as the Christian mission that goes on in this world. It feels we are being squeezed from every side. It's like, it's like the uh, uh, sort of soldier who rode up to the king one day and said, Your Majesty, I'm out of breath because I've been fighting your enemies on the north I've been fighting your enemies on the south. I've been fighting your enemies on the east and the west. The king looked perplexed and said, My man, I have no enemies in the west, and not many in the south. And the, king, the, the soldier said, and you can probably guess what he said, You have now, Your Majesty. And it feels like that sometimes as a church. We look to those who once supported us, once who at least went along with the ethics and the morals. Of we, we proclaimed. And people seemed happy, seemed happy just to lay them aside because much of what is said sounds tempting and sounds nice, sounds good. It makes sense because the, the sort of new gospel that we hear is about whether it's about uh, ethnicity, whether it's about sexuality, uh, whether, whether it's about wealth, whether it's about the environment. It, there's a part of us it makes sense to. And indeed, it makes sense because, and this is the point this writer of this book says, a lot of it, they've sort of taken, they've taken our ammunition. We have been robbed. So we could sit down and just bemoan our our state. And we could just wring our hands and say things aren't as they used to be. Daniel could have done this. But Daniel said no. They were trying to get him to live a different way, to abandon his God, to abandon the the dictates of his God, to abandon the relationship he had with his God and say, come this new way, Daniel. It's a a far, far better way. He said, no. They wanted to punish him for praying to his God. He said, no, I'm going to keep on praying because this God is the only one who will lead me and guide me and enable me. I think there are three things. Don't worry. The clock still says 20 past nine, but uh, I do know different. I've got to watch here. You could spend weeks on each of these. And I'm going to mention them in about three sentences, which won't do them justice. This is not new. Go back to the Renaissance, go back even further. Indeed, <clears throat> go back to the Garden of Eden. And in a sense, you see echoes of this. The first is, the world says, what is truth? Just as Pilate said, as we'll think in a couple of weeks' time, what actually is truth? 
I looked it up in the dictionary. I went back to the old-fashioned, opened the book, looked at the pages, and I thought, what I get out, what I get out this is. It must have been a Friday afternoon job when they got to truth. But I could have done no better to try and explain what truth is without, sound, without sounding unbiased, without sounding, <clears throat> in any way, trying to support one idea and not another. It's so, so difficult. Is it... Is truth like a sort of a watertight compartment where there's just a set of rules and regulations you go to? Some live like that. Some are here today may think that. Others think in quite the opposite way. That in a sense, it's the journey you take and you take the experiences that you've had, the experiences that, that are sad, the experiences that are challenging, and you sort of put them all together. By the time you take your last breath, you have, as it were, concocted for yourself what you believe to be truth. So my idea of truth is going to be different from yours, but hey-ho, so, so what? That is the problem for today. When man, when we speak about Jesus, when we say to Jesus it's the only way, Jesus is the only way to true life, he's the only way to eternal, eternal life, he's the only way to live in any meaningful, joyful, hopeful way. He is the answer. So, oh, no, well, there's other gods, if you like. There's other ways. We don't believe your truth. The other is individualism. What has been around for many years. Go back to the writers and the philosophers of centuries ago, even to Plato and Aristotle, and you'll find this struggle. What is man? Why am I here? What's my relationship with others and them with me? Surely I am king of my life. Surely I should dictate what I do or what I don't do. Who is this God to tell me? The last really is the man's condition. Paul said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Nonsense, many would say. Man is innocent. It's, it's the world, it's the environment that make him what he is. That is the challenge we have. And many, many more. But we are living in, and our children and their children will certainly be brought up in a world and an atmosphere where the things that once were taken as solid and absolute are now not. So we have these, this crowd, a crowd that got shorter and smaller and smaller as time went on. And those in this crowd who are on the edge said, I don't know, I hear what you're saying, Jesus, but this is hard. Indeed, even amongst the 12 disciples, they said, this is a hard saying. Hard in the sense not difficult to understand as much as, in a sense, hard because I do understand it. When someone tells you, tells you some news, usually bad news, I don't believe it. I cannot believe it. You know, you can't tell me this person's all died. I was talking to him last Thursday. I was with him yesterday. I saw him this morning. And now you're saying he's died. We can't really accept it and believe it. And there are those who cannot accept and believe that Jesus lives for them. He died for them. He rose again from the dead for them. He ascended on high. That he loves them. He wants a relationship with them. And that relationship will only be built when they feed on him. Not literally eating of him, but in spiritually and every other sense of the word where we rely utterly and completely as a baby does upon its mother. 
So it is, we need to feed upon Jesus. But for some, that was one step too far. And the crowd began, we don't know how many, but this big number of other disciples walked away. And perhaps this morning, that's where we are. Perhaps we are firstly being challenged, will you come and walk closer with Jesus? Will you feed upon him moment by moment, day by day? Or do we do, and I speak to myself first and foremost, do we sort of just have a bit of him when, when we remember, when we need it? Or do we throw our lives saying, Lord, take total command of my life. Come into these broken bits, the hurt bits, the damaged bits, the bits that don't make sense, the bits that I can't really talk to anyone about. The Lord says, I want to come in and I want you to rely on me, feed on me. But some of us say, well, there must be another answer, must be another way. There isn't, and you won't find one. Jesus is the only way. But in a sense, this question really is asked to the twelve, including Judas. Will you leave me as well? Will you walk away? Will you go with the crowd who says, I don't want to be unpopular. I want to be in with everyone. It isn't good, it's not cool, as they would say, to be unpopular. But Jesus says what is more important, your popularity with the others or your relationship with me. We're going to throw away the very answer for which we search as individuals, as a nation, as a world, as mankind, if we walk away from Jesus. This morning may be a time when you haven't literally walked away. Still come to church, still say your prayers, but somehow you've walked away from Jesus. This is the day to come back to him. And maybe for those who've never really been that close, they've been on the edge, they admire some things, they like the things that they see in Christianity. But they've never really seen that at the centre is Jesus, his flesh and his blood. What will you do today? Will you walk away? Will you also leave me? Let us be those who write the 12, who still have many questions to ask, many experiences to, to live through. Until that day came, after that first Easter, when Pentecost came, and these shivering wrecks of men, except Judas, went out and said, we know that Jesus is not only alive, but he is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. May that be our testimony today. Amen.